This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dockett and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today is June 22nd. We are at the end of the market today on Monday. The Dow was up 153 points or 0.59%. The S&P was up 20 points and change or up 0.65%. We saw volatility. The VIX was down 9.54%, ending the day at 31.77. Treasury was up very slightly, ending the day at 0.71% on the U.S. 10-year Treasury. We saw Apple shares jump more than 2%. They unveiled their latest version of the iOS and stated that new Mac computers would no longer be using Intel chips. So that was a big mover. Uh, Amazon was up 1.5% and Netflix was up 2.6%. So tech kind of led the way. Um, Grant, anything else? Well, I think it's it's the way we've we've seen the tech companies are some of the best performing, top performing sectors uh, over the last say, 100 days since we've declared uh, the pandemic. Uh, there, there are a couple of ones, but I think there's really no surprises to see that the tech companies are continuing to lead the way. Yeah. And I, I think it is would behoove us to mention in terms of how frothy the markets are. We'll talk a little bit about the Fed buying corporate later, but I think it would really be remiss of us if we didn't talk about the fact that there's been a true two trillion dollar increase in bank deposits since January, uh, which is when you know coronavirus first landed upon our shores. In April alone, deposits were up by eight hundred and sixty five billion. I mean, banks are really going to be lowering what's already garbage rates, so um, that's going to be a big issue. I mean, we saw two thirds of these gains going to the twenty five biggest institutions. You name it: your Citigroup, your BOA, your J P Morgan Chase. Part of that's because Boeing and Fed drew down $10 billions of dollars in their line of credit and parked the funds. But we also saw personal savings rates grown by 33% in April. Stimulus checks have certainly helped. Actually, personal income climbed 10.5% in April as well. So a lot of money on the sidelines that could be ripe to be invested. And it makes sense because if we think about how after 2008, there was a lot of mergers in the banking industry, and now we have these mega banks uh, that have their regional branches, or not really regional branches, but nationwide branches uh, across the country. And we saw that uh, personal savings rate hit hit highs in, in April. And also, if we think about um, where the PPP loans are actually, uh, they're all flowing through the, the major networks. So that also is increasing their deposits as well, because they're increasing their cash on hand. Uh, so overall, it's, it's it's a good time. And I think you're absolutely right that since they have so much cash, they're going to decrease their interest saving rates. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Yeah. And some of the big numbers to take away in terms of commercial bank deposit growth, when we're looking at, um, you know, Q4 from 2019 to Q1 2020, I mean, JP Morgan Chase was up 18% and Citigroup was up 11%. BOA was up 10%. So we uh, reached 100 days of our pandemic. Um, so I guess that's kind of an ominous anniversary. <laughs> Good I, news, bad news. Yeah, it's been it. a real <laughs> shitty courtship. But uh, in terms of there, there's definitely been some movers and shakers, and then there's been some down um, sectors as well. I guess I'll start with uh, information technology has been the biggest boon 
Um, you know, the price change when we're looking at March 10 to uh, June 17th, that was up 17.2%. Um, and and then consumer discretionaries were also a big one, up 16.6%. And we would expect those two, because if we think about information technology with Zoom and everyone having to move online, that does make sense, especially with uh, e-commerce online uh, and then consumer uh Staples also makes sense because people are going to continue to buy their toilet paper, especially during during the pandemic. Uh, and then on the flip side, we saw en- energy really decrease. And, and if we think about uh, how oil has reacted over the pandemic with the decrease in demand and an increase in supply, that, that also makes sense. Uh, and then financials as well. And even though we just talked about the the uh, the big deposits that they have, we, we did see that rates drastically decrease, which also affects the, the balance sheets of financial. So it is it is interesting to see how the different sectors shake out. Yeah, we've got a series of pretty good um, economic news, uh, starting with um, May retail sales. I mean, retail sales were up uh, 16.8% from a month earlier. I mean, Dow Jones economists had uh, you know, expected 8%. So, you know, more than double that. Uh, when we're looking at food in particular, you know, that was a big gainer. So retail sales definitely, definitely kept up and are, are pretty strong, at least, at least this past month or so. Well, it was interesting to see how uh, the, the home improvements sales definitely increased. So as people are in quarantine, they want to redo their bathrooms or everything like that. Uh, and then we saw hobby and sporting goods sales, as well as bookstore sales, rise about 88 uh, percent. It should be noted that we, we did have this record month, but we also um, we also were coming down from coming back from a complete shutdown. Uh, so it was a little bit to be to be expected and total sales were actually still off by about 6% compared to a year ago. Uh, so it, it's good to see beating expectations, but we're still, we're still on the mend. Yeah. I mean, we should also mention that in terms of food sales, uh, when we're looking at May, they were up 17.7%, which beat what was a previous record in October, 2001. So immediately past nine 11, um, which was, which up 6.7%. So, you know, you had some sectors doing really well. Uh, additionally, when we look back at Empire State manufacturing data, I mean, of course, doesn't take us much long back to remember the situation New York and, and New Jersey and, and the tri-state area was in. Uh, that's certainly gone up a lot. Um, you know, manufacturing activity is now uh, at its highest level um, or optimism. I should say optimism for future activities at its highest level in almost 11 years. And it's good to see a little bit of a rebound, especially in New York, uh, to see uh, since that was really the epicenter in the United States to see a bit of rebound there. Uh, in terms of activity, though, we, we have to continue to watch what the Fed is doing, especially with with buying bonds. Uh, there was a couple of articles over the weekend on it. Drew, what's your take on, we talked a little bit about it last week on the podcast, but the Federal Reserve, how they're boosting corporate bond markets. Is it creating a bubble? What are your general thoughts? Well, there's congressional watchdogs who are looking at it, um, and there's for good reason, right? So Federal Reserve stated that it started buying individual corporate bonds, and that's in addition to the exchange-traded funds they're already buying. Ed Yardini stated that if the Fed persists in flooding the markets with liquidity, the risk is that the Fed will create the greatest financial bubble of all times. So there's a couple things to make up this. I mean, so far, you have $7 billion worth of purchases 
Uh, corporate bonds are what, a $6.7 trillion market. And the Fed has indicated it intends to buy no more than $750 billion in this program. The program will expire at the end of September. So based on that, you could say, you know, the asset appreciation due to the Fed purchasing bonds could be overblown. Contrarily, there is a massive amount of zombie companies um, whose revenues don't cover their debt service costs. So, you know, you're looking at companies with an interest coverage ratio below one, um, which is, you know, you're looking at their earnings before interest and taxes divided by their interest expenses. I mean, Oxford economics demonstrate that now, I mean, now 32 percent of companies uh, fall in this category, and that's double what it was before the COVID crisis. So that adds more credence to the fact that there might be asset manipulation and looking at you know, the soundness of these bonds is definitely something to be worried about as well. I definitely agree. Also, because if we think about the issuance so far uh, already this year is topped one trillion and is likely to double 2019. So we're seeing an increase in the the corporate debt, and that is to be expected in a, in a recession. But now to have a, a buyer who's going to who already has signaled to the market that they're going to do whatever it takes, it, it I wonder if people are going to continue to issue more debt knowing that the Fed is going to bail them out. And uh, just the zombie companies, as you mentioned, where they don't really have any revenue and, and the stimulus is propping up, uh, when the stimulus runs out, is there going to be a, a run of bankruptcies as well? So uh, overall, continuing to see the Fed, I, I think that the Fed has signaled that they do want to do whatever it takes, but I wonder if, if it's coming to a point where they're, they're almost doing too much. Yeah, at some point, the tap's going to turn off uh, in terms of PPP. And, and I mean, there's going to be a lot of smaller companies where it's going to be a it's going to be weird to, to see what happens. I mean, of course, they have emergency powers, but there's going to be people on the legislative side that say hey, statutorily that doesn't go on forever. So, well, and it and it comes to the fact about credit rating. Right. So if, if why is the Fed feel obligated to support people who who bought? triple B rated bonds, if, if you you know the risk and therefore you're receiving the higher payout. So why does the Fed feel obligated to, to support those corporate bonds as well? Um, so that's a big question mark. I mean, we're also going to have to be worried about debt. I mean, you had Stephen Roach, who's a Yale economist and a senior fellow, um, was, you know, discussing the fact that, you know, with the onslaught of new debt, uh, there could be a forecast of a 35 percent the the decline, um, you know, of the U United States currency against its major um, rivals. And that would be something that would be devastating, especially, you know, in the midst of us trying to solve issues related to our trade balances, you know, across the globe. Um, if we have a dollar that's, you know, if, I mean, I mean, on one side, obviously, you might get more, you might get more imports, but uh, at the end of the day, we're still an export market. So. And they're they're forecasting a thirty five percent decline in U.S. currency against ma major rival rival currencies. So that would be the the yen and the pound as well as the euro. What he was saying in in his lecture is that the world is now actually beginning to doubt the U.S. Uh, backing of of currency, and that overall, uh, with with the growing deficit that we have in the United States, as well as the trade def the trade wars that we have, that we're actually digging ourselves in a hole and that people no longer look to the stronghold of the dollar, and they may actually look to uh, the euro or, or maybe even China overall. 
especially as a trade partner. Right. Yeah. And I just mentioned that we, I mixed up the imports and exports, of course. So just realize that <laughs> a second, I don't want to have to add that in the add-on sources. So we're going to take care of that right now. We're an import country, but you know, we, um, we're, then, then that's, that's what's vexing. Um, but yeah, I mean, the U S has been the reserve currency and, um, I mean, it's really behooves us to remain the fact that we remain the world's uh, reserve currency. In terms of uh, our thing, there's going to be changes to 401ks. Um, you know, we've talked about personal savings. Uh, 401ks certainly seem to have, you know, they've grown in years. There's been increased flexibilities. You know, companies can match. Uh, but, you know, a lot of savers have always chosen target date funds um, or just kind of you know, low expense ratio index funds, and they sort of just, you know, leave it as is. The Trump administration is seriously considering the ability to add, um, you know, some some PE and other things. Uh, what do we think about that? I'm really not a fan. Uh, I think overall, private equity is has a sexy name, so it may have people flow into the into these funds, but they they really are high risk. Uh, more high risk than than these target funds. There's less visibility into them because they don't have to disclose as much as they would to the SEC as as public companies. You know, another question that I have on it is, are the private equity investments just going to be looped into some of these other funds or are they going to be standalone investments? Is there a minimum that you have to have in your 401k or, or make annually before you can invest in them? Uh, You know, overall private equity is it there there's barriers to entry and i think that's that's why um that said i can also see the flip side of the coin and say that with with private equity the average investor usually cannot gain access to that type of sophisticated investing and therefore this may give the the i would say more average investor an ability into that into that space i mean you've seen a move to alternatives and things like variable annuities over you know several years but I am. It is vexing because when you're looking at a 401k, you're really looking at your average retail investor and what level of financial education do they have and what should we expect of ourselves, really. Um, and offloading that amount of risk in something that is really geared to be your nest egg. I mean, you got the value of your home that you can flip for retirement. But then apart from that, you're looking at, you know, 401ks and your pensions. So, adding on more risk in something that's already, you know, you've seen massive, massive declines in 2000, you know, 2008, and then uh, 2020, and wherever you are on the retirement horizon, you really want to just minimize all of that. Um, And if your company's matching contributions, in some ways, the return isn't the most important thing you look at. You know, you it's really a matter of dollar for dollar savings. Well, where else are you going to get a 50% match or whatever it is? Right. So, I mean, it is it is important, of course, but in, in some regards, it, it, should, it could be looked at as a secondary asset. And I, and I think that's a great point about financial intellect of, of these average 401k holders. And, and, I, and I would argue it's probably not very high, which is why there's such a high flow into the target date funds is because they say, oh, I'm probably going to retire in 2045, so I'm going to set it and forget it, and and that's what I'm invested in. And whereas I think the appeal, the sexiness of private equity is going to draw on investors. And 
and you're absolutely right. And we're talking about people's nest egg and that may be their main source of retirement if they were to have a significant decrease in that because private equity is one less liquid and they're harder to value and there's higher cost with investing in them. I mean, there's a lot of open-ended questions that I really think are going to come at the expense of the consumer. I mean, and one thing we know too is even in something, of course, indices are risky and you can lose money and everything else. But when you're looking at a basket of funds, uh, that's still considered more of a standard than a lot of alternatives out there. Um, and, and investors consistently underperform the index because of, you know, inflows and outflows at unopportune times. And that's due to, you know, herd mentality. That's due to confirmation bias. That's due to a whole bunch of psychological factors. I'm wondering if there's going to be some kind of increased, increased presence of those psychological factors if they're exposed to alternatives and, and private equity funds and everything else. And that's a great point. And we saw that the Stanford Center of Longevity said that about half of America's workers are saving money through retirement plans at work, which is great. But on the flip side, that uh, there's a lot lower percentage of younger workers who are actually leveraging them. And about two thirds of millennials have saved nothing for retirement. And so if we think about someone trying to play catch up, investing in private equity, take some significant losses, that's going to drastically impact their nest egg. Yeah. So I think we, we, we now are going to shift gears a little bit here to, uh, to Amazon and, and how Amazon is coming out of the pandemic. Uh, so uh, our friend Jeff Bezos, 1995, was a uh, probably talk about a transformation to what he was today. But um, I guess a couple billion dollars can do that for you. <laughs> but uh, And a gym membership. <laughs> I think there's a little more than that because uh, – <laughs> He's got something going on. Uh, anyways, so his his firm now, Amazon, is one of the most popular companies. It's a stock that's constantly talked about, and we're seeing almost a bit of a monopoly as they expand into industry over industry. And now we're seeing uh, Mr. Bezos having to take on more of a day-to-day management role um, and that actually Amazon may be in a bit more of a uh, vulnerable spot than before. Uh, what's your take on Amazon during the pandemic? Are they going to come out stronger? Are they in too many industries, Drew? What's your What's your take? So Amazon is a case study, really, of more money, more problems. Um, I mean, right now it's worth roughly one point three trillion. First quarter sales were up twenty six percent year over year. The firm hired one hundred seventy five thousand people. They issued thirty four million gloves. And they leased out 12 new cargo aircraft. So now they have an aircraft fleet of, of, of 82. Um, so what is going to be the staying power of the pandemic and how it relates to Amazon? Well, we saw a lot of people who are 60 and older. They've created more digital payment accounts. Uh, that may be here to stay. I mean, once someone gets used to it, they're hard-pressed to leave, especially once they find out the convenience. So you have kind of more silver foxes getting into a niche that, other people have um, persistently used for, for quite some time. But at the same time, uh, Amazon is not the monopoly that Google is. Uh, Amazon has a 40% share of American e-commerce, 6% of all retail sales. Um, and there's going to be big questions. I mean, how do you treat ultimately third-party sellers? Uh, or do you treat them on equal terms as the, your own products? Because, you know, the Congress and the European Union are certainly interested on what you're going to do with that. 
And, and additionally, um, you know, you have an issue of bloating. Uh, it's not a lean and agile company anymore. You got $104 billion of plant and lease expenses. Put that in perspective, Walmart has $119 billion worth. So you got this heavy balance sheet and you got diminishing margins. Um, so yeah, uh, part of their size, especially their rapid growth during this pandemic is they're going to have a lot of things to think about and it's life's going to be more complicated trying to managing all this cloud computing and just basic infrastructure needs. Well, and you have weak margins in those in the AWS and uh, the bloating is is really too big for your britches. Really, they went into industry after industry and now they have this this larger than life balance sheet. But I also think uh, when we think about the pandemic, we would have thought that Amazon's market share would have actually increased. And that wasn't the case, right? Because we saw a- online sales for Walmart, online sales for Costco, and some of their target, some of their main uh, competitors actually doubled in April, whereas Amazon's uh, were still increased, but compared to its market share growth, did not actually jump. And so uh, Bezos has always said that he wants to focus on his customer and not the competition. But I think that's great. But all of a sudden, there comes a point where your competition creeps up on you. And and there was actually an interesting piece in the, in this uh, Economist article that we're referencing here is that if you were to take a, a clone of Amazon lookalike, so if you were to take single stocks who doves specializes in each one of these industries that they do. So you take Shopify for the online platform, Netflix for Amazon video and UPS for the shipping. All of those have actually had a better time this year, outperformed Amazon uh, in terms of percentage, which I think is is really interesting if you think about stripping Amazon and actually seeing uh, if they maybe expanded too far out of their niche. Yeah, um, but we'd also be, you know, there's there's going to be this international there is international competition there's no shortage of of regional companies that look a lot like amazon i mean when you look at um south america they got mercado libre jiao in india you got alibaba in china so there's a lot of companies around the world that look and act exactly like amazon and then you know with depending on the region that's that's who their consumers use they use their own company so it isn't. It is. It is a. It is a major company. It is an international conglomerate. It is all these things, but they they do have to worry. They're they're not in a. Uh, they are more in the red ocean than they used to be. You know, in terms of blue ocean competition, there's a lot more global uh, companies that are that are looking the same, operating the same, and are kind of coming at them. Yeah, I just wonder if the cloud space is is what's the best for them. I mean, you're going to go against, as you said, the Googles and the Microsofts, who's been in the in the computing business for a very long time. And uh, I personally wouldn't bet against Microsoft myself. So. No, no. <laughs> I, I mean, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'd bet against Amazon either by any means, but. Absolutely not. With, with, with all these things we mentioned and how it's created diminished margins, I mean, they're going to have to find ways to harvest data, sell ads and subscriptions to make up for it. So there is a lot to think about. Um, they've certainly done well in this pandemic, but. But yeah, I mean, they have new, more money, more problems. Um, with that, Grant, you want to wrap us up? Is there anything we overlooked? Anything our viewers should be kind of pursuing? Absolutely. Uh, so if we, if we, I think one of the interesting things to follow is is the Hertz bankruptcy, and then the SEC coming in and, and telling them that they're actually not allowed to 
sell shares. So interesting to see if we're going to continue to see these sports gamblers prop up uh, Hertz and some of these other companies. We we have Nike also uh, coming out with their earnings this week. So it will be the the highest profile company this week who, who's listing. So continuing to see how the pandemic has affected different companies. And then we also have the annual rebalancing of the Russell stock indices, which takes place on Fridays. And this usually is one of the heaviest trading days of the year. So there's trillions of dollars that are linked to these indices. Um, So some investors are trying to anticipate what stocks are flowing in, what stocks are flowing out. Especially if we think about the the best movers that we previously mentioned in, in today's podcast. Uh, but so be on the lookout for Friday to see a lot of movement in the market, uh, a lot of as uh, investors try to anticipate what's going in and what's going out. But I think Friday is going to be a, a trade heavy day. Yeah, I'd, I'd say we, we should look at the Sun Belt and uh, kind of Florida in particular. And we're looking at COVID cases. They've certainly been exploding. Um, there's probably lessons to be learned from how New York managed things and how other places have managed things, but there's certainly an influx. Uh, whether we want to call this a second phase, you know, I'm I'm always reticent to say because I just think it's shifted west um, and south as opposed to where it was clustered. But uh, yeah, there's going to be several state economies that really have to manage this and mitigate the effects, um, you know, because... Because we're in the summer, we're about as hot as it gets, and then you still see huge spikes in a lot of these these states. So, which really shows that it isn't really weather related. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if we've learned anything, we've learned nothing. So, mm-hmm. um, and and with that, uh, thank you for listening in. Uh, feel free to like, subscribe if you haven't already, and we'll talk to you next week. We're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.